Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. So while I was on sabbatical last summer, I had a lot of time to read, which, as I love to read, is not a chore. Some of, some of you, it might be, but not for me. Um, one of the many books I read was something I've been wanting to read for a long time. Perhaps you've read it. It's called Through Gates of Splendor. It's the true story of Jim Elliott and a mission team to Ecuador back in the 1950s. And it's written by Elliott's wife, Elizabeth. And it documents the story of how this team of intrepid missionaries come together to bring the gospel to an unreached people group uh, group called the Hirani, or Orca. And this wasn't just any group. This was a tribe of cannibals, cannibals who'd never had any contact with white people before. Now, if you're not a reader, don't worry. They've also made a story of this movie called End of the Spear. So you can watch it if you want to, somewhere like Amazon Prime. But whether you read it or watch it, and please do, it's an amazing but ultimately tragic story. See, at first, the team, through meticulous planning um, and ingenious ways of using a yellow Piper Cub airplane, if you know Jerry Bacon, who goes to Holy Cross, he has one of these planes himself still, uh, they establish a good relationship doing these things. And they manage to make contact and drop gifts from a safe distance and build goodwill and trust. Therefore, after several months, the men decide to build a base a short distance from a tribal village along the Kurare River. And there they're approached one time by a small group of Hirani and even give an airplane ride to one curious Hirani whom they call George. His real name was Nankiwi. Encouraged by these friendly encounters, they begin plans to visit the Hirani, but their plans are preempted by the arrival of a large group of about 10 Hirani warriors who kill Elliot and his four fellow missionaries. Now, what would drive people to take such risks? People like Jim Elliot and other people like Brother Andrew who would smuggle thousands and thousands of Bibles behind the Iron Curtain at the height of the Cold War. Or people like the Chinese missionary that Barry Emerson and I met in Pakistan four years ago, working as a businessman but covertly sharing the gospel within Muslim communities. Well, it's the same thing that drives the very first Christian martyr that we read about in our passage from Acts today, Stephen. It's the same thing that drives him to risk and ultimately lose his life. It's the love of the righteous one of whom he so powerfully speaks of. That's Jesus Christ, the one willing to lay down his life for mankind and die upon a cross so that people like Stephen and like you and me might experience the grace and peace of God in life and also in death. And today what we're going to see in this story is a man who shows us not only how to live well, but also how to die well also. So let's turn to our reading from Acts chapter 6 through 8. We've got some selections for you. I'm afraid there's a, the big portion is missing, which is the, the actual things that Stephen says to them, the way he preaches to them. And you can go home and read those if you'd like to. But we're going to look at these sections from Acts chapter 6 through 8 and see what God might be saying to each one of us today through his word. You can follow along on the bulletin or on the screens uh, if you'd like to. And the first thing we should ask is this, because you probably don't know, as you know, I, I want to find out, who is Stephen? Who is Stephen? What do we know about him? Well, the context we come to know Stephen in is in the midst of the first recorded dispute within the early church. 
And it doesn't take long, it seems, for them to have a dispute. You know, if you gather any large group of people together, disputes will arise sooner or later. And the same is true within the church. And what's this dispute about? Well, in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Luke actually tells us. He says this. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. It seems that some of the early church, the widows, are being neglected when provisions for the poor were being given out. Remember, the Christian community was very radical and it took care of its own and took care of the poor, such as widows. And it's not the Hebrew women, those from Palestine who spoke Aramaic, but it's the Hellenists who are being neglected. Now, who are they? Well, they're the Greek-speaking Jews from the diaspora. Diaspora, that means the dispersed Jews, those living outside of Palestine, because not all Jews lived within Palestine. And their primary language was Greek, not Aramaic. And the disciples were native Palestinian Jews who spoke Aramaic as their primary language. So, not as fluent in Greek, they seem to have unintentionally overlooked the Hellenist widows within the church when it came to distributing food and other provisions. And so looking to act quickly and to deal with this division before it becomes a major problem, the 12 apostles gather all the disciples together and they acknowledge that they are overstretched. Remember, this church has grown by thousands over the past few months or so, thousands and thousands. And their primary call is to preach the gospel and to pray as they make clear. But they're getting distracted by food distribution. Not a bad thing to be doing, don't don't hear that, but this is just not their primary calling. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And so they suggest a solution. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now notice, importantly, this is not seen as a second class or inferior calling that they're lining up here, okay? It's not seen that way. Now, these are people who must be of good repute. They are respected by all those around them. They must be full of the Spirit, as the apostles are full of the Spirit. They must be full of wisdom, as the apostles are full of wisdom. In fact, it's a very high bar that is set for this role. And so, in verse 5, we read that the church selects seven men, including Stephen, mostly with Greek-sounding names, which suggests that they will know the, the Hellenist Jews much better than the 12 apostles do. Now, some suggest that these are the first deacons or diakonos in Greek. Um, And so diakonos means servant. And the role of deacon is one that we still formally acknowledge within many different denominations, although with varying degrees of training and varying levels of time commitment. You may come from a background which isn't Anglican, but where you grew up and there were deacons. Okay, And at Holy Cross, we have them too. We have Ed, who's right here. We also have Skip Reitmeyer at Sullivan's Island and Laura Bowman, who's primarily there as well. And these are people who assist with worship, but also with going out to those in hospitals or those unable to join us for church worship, taking bread and wine to them, as well as running other ministries of care, such as Grief Share that Ed has just uh, run for us and will run again soon. Well, getting back to the text, we see that Stephen's ministry blossoms and something much more than simple food distribution happens. Did you catch it in verse 8? It says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. 
It's not just food distribution, right? He's doing that for sure. But there are great signs and wonders, very similar to what we read about with the apostles. Again, it's not a second-class ministry. It's not an inferior ministry. It's a very important ministry. And so as we read all of that, we get that context, we ask again, who is Stephen? And what we see is that in Stephen, we have a man who's filled with the power of the Spirit, who's full of wisdom, and as the next chapter reveals, or the rest of our reading, uh, that we don't have the portion we've missed, it's a wisdom grounded in God's word. He knows God's word well, and who's uh, respected by those around him as well, and who allows God to work through him in incredible ways, the same ways as the twelve, in fact. So he's living his life well. That's what we could say about Stephen. He is living it well as life is meant to be lived by all people. Not just Stephen, not just the apostles, but you and me also. And he's living it to the full. And this is characterized by his obedience to God and his faithfulness to his calling. But not only does Stephen show us how to live well, he also shows us how to die well. And sadly, it's the faithful way he lives that brings about his death. You probably caught that in our reading. You see, when people truly live for Jesus, it makes many other people very uncomfortable because it challenges the status quo. It challenges their way of living. And it reveals things that people don't want to see the light of day. Speaking of Stephen's death, though, pastor and commentator Kent Hughes writes this. Death will ultimately reveal what each of us truly is. Stephen lived his last hours as Christ would and did. He spoke his last words as Christ would and did. He died a martyr's death as Christ would and did. He stood tall through the matchless grace of God. If today were our final day, what would others write about us? Today were our final day, what would others write about us? Now, most of you already know, this past week I returned to the UK to visit my family in Hereford, England, and to bury my granddad, Eric George Bennett. And thank you so much for all the prayers and the kind words that you have sent me. I really appreciate it. And I had the honor of giving the eulogy at his funeral. And it truly was an honor. You see, he was the kind of man that I want to be when I finally grow up. All right? He was that kind of guy. He was a man of quiet integrity who loved the Lord and was respected by all. And let me read you a small uh, portion of what I wrote. Eric Bennett, dad, granddad, great-granddad, is perhaps the last of a dying generation. People who were raised in the Depression era and were content with very little. People who knew the value of a square meal, a day of hard work, and of putting their trust in the, in the Lord. You see, while Grandad was raised as a Christian, his faith really came alive one day at one of Dad's crusader meetings. He heard the speaker share from the Emmaus Road story of how the disciples' eyes were opened, and they finally saw who Jesus truly was. As Grandad put it, the seeds in my life had at last germinated. And the rest of his life was one of following Jesus, whether through assisting with church services at St. Mary's Longfleet, helping with healing prayer ministry or weekly prayer and Bible study meetings, serving on the PCC, we would call that vestry, helping lead church youth camps, or inspired by mum and dad's move to Malaysia, praying for decades for missionaries overseas. Yes, he loved the Lord and served him faithfully for the remainder of his life. He lived what Pastor Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. 
So he was a man who lived a lot longer than Stephen, but who made the most of that extra time and he sought to serve others. He sought to live well. Now, common wisdom says that when you begin a project, begin with the end in mind, right? When you begin a project, have a goal of where you're going to go, whether it's baking a cake or putting up a fence or writing an essay. Know what you're aiming at, and you'll have far more chance of hitting it. And the same could be said of life. Begin with the end in mind. And the end is that one day you and I will all face our maker and we'll have to give account for our lives. And if we've not accepted the love and grace of Jesus, forgiveness and sanctification, and if we've not borne fruit as followers of him, then things will not end well. Do you know him and are you following him? Well, final thought on this passage. Did you notice who witnesses the stoning? Yes, it's Saul, Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul eventually. Verse 58, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then chapter 8, verse 1, at the very end of our reading, and Saul approved of his execution. As the great church father Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I wonder if the death of Stephen began to unsettle Saul, this Pharisee of Pharisees, an early church persecutor and executioner of Christians, to the point where when he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road, we'll come to that in a few weeks, he was actually more open to what Jesus had to say to him. It's interesting that while many people know about the deaths of Jim Elliot and his team, what they don't know is that the widows of those men, including Elizabeth Elliot, later led their killers to Christian faith, to a Christian faith, and one that ended generations of tribal revenge killings. And while it was a long and slow work and often difficult, it did produce fruit in the end. And much like Stephen, as he echoes the words of Jesus on the cross when he forgives his killers as they stone him to death, these women were able to forgive their husband's killers and continue the work of bringing the gospel to their tribe. Well, as we seek to apply this passage to our lives today, I want to ask a couple of questions. And the first is this. Is God calling you to be a deacon or calling you to serve in a similar ministry? Now, it could be that God is calling you actually to become a deacon like Ed, to go through the training process, to go through the discernment process for that, and to be someone who serves formally in our church body. And praise God for that if that's what he's calling you to. If you get a sense of that, let's get together and talk and pray about whether or not that might be God's will for your life. But I'm also grateful for those of you among you who very informally have chosen to help with visiting shut-ins and with serving the needy within our community through the uh, the blue echo bin we have on the back porch. That's one life group who do that. Or the small food pantry that we have on the other end of the porch. Another life group take care of that. Um, or also um, we have people who do a food distribution every few weeks right across the street at Seven Farms Apartment and Village. But how else could you serve the body of Christ? How could you serve? You see, if you call yourself a member of Holy Cross, if you would say this is your church home, then you should be serving your brothers and sisters in some ministry or other, whether it's through prayer ministry whether it's through serving through the music, whether it's through helping with the audiovisual like those guys, or whether it's through greeting others or helping them connect after our service, or perhaps leading a life group, visiting the elderly, maybe helping with our children like our shepherds do, reading the scriptures or serving the bread and the wine, setting the table for communion, etc., etc. How will you serve this family? 
and not just be a taker, but a giver also. Talk to me if you're not sure what God's calling you to, and we can pray over it together. But that's what families do. They love each other well, and they serve each other well. Second question, are you willing to lay down your life for Jesus? I mean, it's the obvious question, isn't it, coming out of this story about Stephen. Are you willing to lay down your life for him? Now, I wonder, does anyone know when the feast day or the saint's day for Stephen is in the church calendar? Anyone know what day of the year that is? Same date every year. Any guesses? It's December 26th. So think about it. We have Christmas the day before, right? December 25th. And then right after that, we have St. Stephen's Day, December 26th, or what the British call Boxing Day. And it's an interesting choice, isn't it? We go from this joy of Christmas to the sadness of this first martyr. But I think it's a strategic placement by the church to remind us that Christmas isn't simply about a sweet baby in a manger surrounded by unusually quiet animals, but it's also about the arrival of the new life of heaven within an inhospitable and downright dangerous world, as N.T. Wright puts it. And so it should come as no surprise when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Yes, we are to lay down our lives for the sake of the kingdom. And what does that look like on Daniel Island or in East Cooper or Canehoy or beyond? I mean, I doubt, I very seriously doubt, that anyone here will be killed for proclaiming Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life tomorrow out on the mean streets of Daniel Island, right? I doubt that's going to happen. I don't think I'll be reading about that in the Daniel Island News next week. But, get this, you will be despised or hated for Jesus' sake if you follow him. Jesus actually says that in Mark 13, 13. And I believe the words of Jesus. None of the words of Jesus I know have not yet come to be, uh, have all come to be true so far, okay? So think about it. You actually may be shunned from certain peer groups or friendships, even family gatherings. Perhaps that's happened already. You may be bullied at school or canceled on social media or unfriended. You may be called out in front of others, as I was a few years ago in the middle of a Daniel Island store. You may be mocked for your sobriety when others are determined that you should drink as much as them. You may be gossiped about and laughed at behind your back. You may be passed over for certain job promotions, or you may have to turn them down. You may be called a bigot or told that you are on the wrong side of history. You see, the gospel flies in the face of various contemporary worldviews that exist within our society, be it the American dream and its individualism and self-centeredness, or the idea that we hear that bigger is better and the idols of materialism and consumerism that are constantly peddled by American corporations, or the mantra of survival of the fittest, and the modern notions that place value on one life over another, particularly at the expense of the weak, the poor, the very young, or the very old. Or the TGI culture, the thank goodness it's Friday culture, and the idea that all work is bad, and that the quest for the easy life and the early retirement are the ultimate goals. Or the belief that it is my country right or wrong, that my earthly nationality is as important, if not more important, than my citizenship in heaven. Or the idea that you can be whoever you want to be. 
the illogicality and the harm of the modern mantra that love is love and numerous other social doctrines that are out there. Yes, once you start to mess around with these embedded cultural beliefs, people get upset, trust me. But when this happens, as it happened to the Apostle Paul, remember, he was the Saul who was persecuting, and they happened to him over and over again once he came to know the Lord. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the way we're to respond is this, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Yes, we are to love and forgive those who would hate us and persecute us for our faith in Jesus. Just as we have been forgiven, we too are to forgive. You see, lest we forget, Stephen may be the first martyr, but not too long before, his master had suffered a very similar fate. After an unfair trial, Jesus is crucified on a cross, and in the midst of this, he asks his father to forgive his murderers. And it's because of this death that we too can be forgiven. Yes, friends, I hate to tell you, but if you haven't realized this yet, you too are a sinner. You are a sinner. In fact, your sin also put Jesus on the cross. Your sin did it too. And mine as well. No one is blameless, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus forgives us. If we'll repent to believe in him, we'll be forgiven. Jesus will set us free and help us to live life as it was meant to be lived. He wants you to love him and to walk lightly with him, experiencing what Eugene Peterson so beautifully calls the unforced rhythms of grace. Stephen experienced this freedom and it was so good, he was willing to die for it. What about you? What are you willing to die for? And if you knew you would die tomorrow, would you be at peace With that, knowing what Stephen knew, that something even greater was awaiting him, or would you be full of fear and doubt? In the epilogue to the book, Through Gates of Splendor, Elizabeth Elliot writes this, God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will, and that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. When we follow Jesus, we may not always know what God is up to in our lives, especially when bad things happen. But we can live and even die at peace because we know that he has a plan and that he will use even the worst of things, such as the death of Jim Elliot or Stephen. He'll use even the worst of things for good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are Lord over all, and that you have a plan for each one of us. And Lord, we pray that we will trust you in the midst of that that we will trust your plan and that we will live life to the full now in the power of the Spirit, people full of wisdom, people full of your truth, people unafraid of persecution, unafraid of being um, ignored, Lord Jesus, or cast aside, and that we will trust you, Lord God. We will trust you that your plan is good and that one day when when we meet you face to face, you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.